of movement in the standings. Some of these dog and handler teams saw themselves go up in the standings while others went down. Most notably in the amateur division, Casey Parker and Bailey didn't have the greatest series allowing Ron Anderson and Smoke to sneak back into the top three. Mike Gibson and Jeter entered the day in first but now find themselves a few points behind after series four. In the open division among our pros, Clark Kennington in Series 4 had four dogs and Lyle Steinman two. It's a similar breakdown here in the finals with Clark having two of the three final dogs and Lyle having one. At the end of the day, we'll see which one of these two gentlemen is our crown champion. It is Crown Championship Day here in Huntsville. Welcome to the Super Retriever Series presented by Yukonuba. I'm Tommy Sanders here in the studio with Chris Aiken. And Chris, we've been through it all. This is the day we've been looking for. The final day has closed. Time to find out who's going to be the Crown Champion. All right, guys. That commercial right there is coming from the Super Retriever Series presented by Yukonuba which, of course, is a sponsor to the podcast. We love them to death. Um, it's time to start gearing up for the Super Retriever Series Championships. This year, it will be in Natchez, Mississippi, from September 25th to 29th. What's crazy is it's, it's the largest turnout that we've ever seen. Uh, of course, most of y'all know that follow the podcast. I was there last year. I got invited by Shannon Nardi. Met my buddy uh, Jerry Impervento out there. He took some photos of my crazy looking dog. Um, but there's a total, there's a total, total, total of 64 qualified dogs. 20 more than we had last year, which makes it the largest group ever, the strongest group ever. We've got uh, 32 qualified amateurs. So make sure that you, if you are uh, in the Natchez area, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, if you just feel like making a long trip from the other half of the country, doesn't matter. Make sure you get out here to the Super Retriever Series. I want to thank Shannon Nardi for keeping me updated as well. If you guys need a refresher, also, you can check it out on Amazon Prime. Just go in the search bar and type in Super Retriever Series. You can catch a few episodes there. That clip, like I said, was um, definitely a snippet from the Amazon Prime uh, episode. And I wanted to kind of, you know, go ahead and get this ramped on up. From now throughout September, I am going to be covering some of the pros and amateurs doing some interviews and, you know, just kind of keeping y'all up to date and up to speed with what these guys are thinking and all the good, the bad ups and downs that go on with competing dogs. So thanks again to Yukonuba Sporting Dog, Super Retriever Series, and Miss Shannon Nardi. I'm also hoping I can make it out to the competition on that weekend if I'm not working, um, you know, if I'm not getting off of work too late. So check it out. Amazon Prime, stay tuned for more from the Super Retriever series presented by Yukonuba.
the Gundog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by OnX Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the OnX Hunt app from your phone's app store today and check out onxmaps.com for more inside Onyx. Also want to bring to you Garmin, Build a better dog with devices for tracking and training, from obedience to hunting, limiting nuisance barking. Get exactly what you need to make a life with your hunting buddy that much better. Go check out the Garmin Pro 550 Plus. That's what we're using on this side of town. And uh, get yourself ready for the hunting season coming up. Don't have your dog running all out there crazy. Get him woke, broken, in collar condition. That's what we are working on now. Go check them out right now at Garmin.com. The Gun Dog Notebook is also brought to you by Dakota 283 Kennels. Check out the new updated price drops on Dakota283Kennels.com. Use the promo code TGDN10 for 10% off at checkout. Also presented to you by Lion Country Supply, the Gun Dog World's premium gun dog supplier. Check them out now. Welcome back to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. This is your host, Darrell Smith, and I want to bring to you episode 80 with Philip Maley. Um, just a couple of things before we get rocking and rolling. Um, Onyx Maps has a new sharing feature that you can share camp locations, meetups, tracks to tree stands, blind locations, uh, share them with your hunting partners, share them with your wives, any loved ones, give them peace of mind. And also, um, they are deletable. So just in case you lose a friendship or something like that because the buddy was caught hunting in a spot that you asked him not to, um, you can get rid of that spot. But likely by then, if they're smart, they would have saved those GPS locations on their own. Or they can just go hunt their own spot and share those locations with somebody else. Um, you know, take new people out and stuff like that. It's a good app good feature for mentoring and all kinds of stuff like that. The Super Retriever series is actually coming up next weekend. Um, so I hope you guys can make it out to Natchez. I will also be in Kansas at the World Class Hunting Expo. And hopefully I can get some interviews with Bud Moore, Farrell Miller, Mo Lindley, any of the old school field trialers, the, the OGs, if you will. So anywho, just some updates as to what's going on here is the episode with Philip Maley. Okay, well, I met Delmar Smith, and, and he was one of the ones that helped me kind of dispel some of these myths in dog training, and, and the one about you never seriously train a bird dog until he's a year old. Well, I, I was at this pheasant fest, and Delmar was there, and we, we started talking about some things, and one of the guys in the audience said, uh, well, Delmar, see, you were fortunate. Uh, you could train on wild birds, you know, and that's the best thing to train on for a dog. And I'm sure you've heard that one before. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, and so Delmar stopped him right then, and he says, wait, let me explain something to you. Yeah, I trained on wild birds, but you guys actually have it better than I do. He said, I can take uh, birds in a lodger and do much more than I can do with wild birds because I can control the situation. Right. 
And he said, you know, I could, with, with that, with launchers and an e-collar, I, I could train a national champion with one pigeon in Central Park. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought about it. And so as we continued to talk, I said, yeah, you know, see, that's one of those myths that was out there. I said, the other one was about you never seriously train a bird dog until he's a year old. And I don't know where that came from because I always start mine as puppies. I start training. Yep. And he said, well, you know where that came from? Back when he started training dogs, there was no distemper vaccine. Mm. So almost all dogs got distemper within the first year of their life, and they either lived or they died. So no one wanted to put all that effort into a puppy and then have the puppy die on it. Right. And just that simple. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and you got to think that ideology has been passed down without anybody actually clarifying why. Right. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, and you know, all right. So this is my, this is why I'm amazed at what you just said, but I have a lot of questions for those guys too. Now I'm a big fan of Bud Moore who was apprenticed by Delmar, like firsthand, you know, back in the day. And, and, and you know, Bud is one of the, the, the OGs in the field trial game, right? Um, and I look at those guys and I look at their ideology and, and it seems to me like, you know, I look at them like in awe and they're looking at our generation and, and the resources that we have like, dang, like you said, y'all, y'all got it better than us. And I just wonder what those guys would like how much further those guys would have been along if they had had that. Because somebody like Delmar, they say like he is dang near like a dog whisperer. You see what I'm saying? Like right, right, right. He was, you know, training coyotes to, to be bird dogs and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> well, well one, one of the things that interests me, you know, when you talk about what did they use back then to train, like Delmar told me when he was young, he said, all I ever wanted to do was train horses and dogs. Yeah. That's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah. And he he told me like he used to let these dogs run big out on the you know out on the prairie and stuff and they're running looking for birds and what he would do they'd find a bird they go on point he had his horse trained he would ride the horse up there the horse would step on the check cord and hold the dog wow and now how he trained the horse to do that <laughs> no clue <laughs> no clue but but that just goes to show you know, where they were, they used what they had and they made the most of it. And I guess it was guys like him who could figure that thing out. Yeah. That, that made all the difference. Right. And, and again, you hit on another good point, man, like making the most out of what you have. Right. Um, right. You know, nowadays it just seems like, and, and I'm, I'm so glad to be on here because essentially what I want to do is talk to you about clearing up some of the misconceptions, like you said, and learn some of the unconventional ways that you do things. Because it seems like though we have so many resources, everybody still wants a kind of a, a direct line of sight, if that makes sense. Right. And right. It's, it's still not that. It's just a culmination of, at least I've found, it's a culmination of resources and a culmination of you know, knowledge and experiences from guys that came before and you kind of piece together your own book. 
Right. Well, I, but I think an important thing is when you first start out, you should have a plan. Yeah. You know, how, how are you going to train this dog? What is your plan? Where are you trying to get him to? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the important thing. Um, you've seen my, my pup a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've sent you some pictures of him. Well, he's on a plan that I've, you know, the system kind of that I developed from, that works great for me. I'm looking at him down the road to at least test in NAVDA utility, which is a finished gun dog. Right. So the things I'm doing for him now are building, you know, they're just building blocks that we'll keep adding to that will get him to utility. But my eye is on utility. Right. Right. So, you know, with that utility test, what, because we're, okay, so we're training for, uh, similar goals, but different goals, right? With with both of our pointers. So you're looking for a finished gun dog for utility, and that has its own definitions. Where I'm honestly looking for, you know, at minimum a shooting dog for field trials. Which it they're right. both different. I mean, they're right exactly. The the expectations are different. So kind of break that down for for the listeners. Like what. What makes a utility dog so unique as opposed to a finished shooting dog or even an all-age dog, from your understanding? Well, kind of, first of all, when, when you start looking at NAVDA as opposed to field trials, NAVDA is geared toward making a hunting dog. Right. Okay. So they're not interested in how big the dog runs. They're not interested in any of that kind of, you know, the style isn't all that important because there are some breeds in there that point with their tails, you know, hanging down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So style isn't all that important. It's how the dog does his job, which is what's important. And the fact that he's going to work with the handler or owner uh, so that you get the job done. You know, he's he's interested about he what that dog is interested in is putting that bird in the bag. Right. That's his goal. And so it's not, you know, and I've watched the difference in training and I've seen, seen some of that where you encourage the dog to run really big um, with the NAVDA type training. We're, we're just not concerned about that. And it, it more the dogs that you choose should be more geared toward your style as a hunter. Mm-hmm. But the NAVDA dogs are meant to do a lot of different things mm-hmm. uh, where specialists really aren't. Right. Right. And and I think that is probably the overarching theme as to what we're going to, you know, get into in this podcast. And, and, and that's that is I mean, it, we're not going to declare it, but that is OK. The specialist dog versus the all around hunting dog. Right. And I want right. Vegas, my my young dog, I want him, you know, first and foremost to be a hunting dog. I'm just expecting him to hunt with a whole hell of a lot of style and all of those things that go into field trials. It's, it's going to be challenging to maintain that throughout the season. You, right. you, you right. see what I'm saying? And it can be done, you know? It, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I know guys that do it. So. Yep. Yep. And you know, before we even go any further, ladies and gentlemen, that is Philip Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> I figured we would start off with a bit of a bang and you got to talk about Delmar and you know you, I was like oh no we need to start right here. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, well, he's a, he's a great guy, wealth of information. I, like I said, I got the opportunity to meet him at a pheasant fest and sit down and talk with him a little bit, and mm-hmm. it was eye opening. Really? Okay, okay. I mean, you know, so going back, man, let's let's take it all the way back. Let's take it all the way back before we get too too far down the rabbit hole. Um, start with your background, because. You're a, a southern boy, from what I understand, and now you're all the way out in Kansas. Yeah, well, actually, I, I'm actually from Detroit. Okay. Um, but I got into hunting because my father hunted, his father hunted. Uh, you know, it just kind of came up through the lines. When I was a kid, we hunted rabbits and we hunted um, uh, squirrels and we hunted pheasant and we hunted, you know, rough grouse, whatever the beagle would work. That's what we get. So you were working and, beagles on rough grouse? Yeah, on anything. Okay. And, and I actually had one beagle. She was a phenomenal dog. She would hunt anything that you wanted her to hunt. Okay. And, and by the way she barked, you could tell the difference on what she was running, whether it was a rabbit or if she was on a pheasant. Uh, you could tell by the way she barked and the way she kind of moved through the woods because she wouldn't push a pheasant as hard as she would push a rabbit. Right, right. So you could really tell, and I mean, we we had an opportunity. We shot a lot of pheasants over that dog. Shot some rough grouse over that dog. Wow! Uh, so that and that's kind of how I came up into it. Um, you know, just hunting with my father. Okay, and with that beagle, so that's that's interesting. And and in light of the whole versatile dog thing, you don't even. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge, man. You you. It seems like back in the day, people didn't necessarily always specify, oh, I need a German short hair if I want a dog to hunt all kinds of game. I've heard a lot of stories where guys was like, look, hell, I had a border collie. Yeah, <laughs> and- exactly. <laughs> and that's funny because my father had one and he used to, when he was a kid and he hunted rabbits with that collie. Wow. Wow. And I mean, and they just, the dogs work at the same time because we're talking about a baseline instinct of hunting. The dog has it. You know, most dogs that are, you know, out in the field or field bred eventually what it seems like develop that hunting instinct. So, you know, I've heard stories of guys. I, I know a buddy of mine, uh, Homer, was telling me. I think he mentioned that he went out duck hunting or something, and a dude had a Rottweiler. It was weird. I was like, <laughs> what? I, I, okay. Well, well, you know, dogs are predators. Yeah. And and that's that's just what they are. And so in a lot of cases, if you get the dog doing, you know, getting game that you want, one of the other things is he wants to please you, and so he will do whatever it is you do. Right. Now, how well he can do it, that's another matter. Right. And you know, that, he may not be bred for it, right. so he may not do it great, but he'll still try to do it. Right. And see, and, and the degree in which he does it, you know, and, and the skill level, that's where we start getting into the specified breeds and and things like that. Right. You right. know, um, you know, I'm down here and I... You know, admittedly, and a lot of people know this, I bounced back and forth between getting a, a pointer and a, a short hair. Right. You know, it was actually a conversation, but I, I sat, and the reason I didn't do it was a couple of reasons. I just like, I've always wanted a pointer. It started with me um, 
you know, seeing that photo in Garden and Gun and Neil Carter, and I was like, dang, I like that dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, I just liked it, and I found out how much it equated to Georgia history, and then going further right. down, um, pointers were like quail specialists to me. Right. You know, um, right. It, but it, the job could have been done, you know, with another breed. It fundamentally comes down to choice. You know, now I'm also... You know, I hear guys talking about running, like especially in NABDA, you see pointers in there and they'll do the duck search and the the fur search. I'm not expecting my dog to do that at all. Why? Because I have a Labrador. Now, that is my versatile dog. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Like, and I'm not, and, and by that, and this is where the point of contention in the conversation, you know, really starts to, uh, go to subject to opinion my lab is more quote unquote versatile than my pointer and it's based on expectation my lab was the first dog I had that's all I had at the time and I like shooting rabbits I shot him with my granddad I like shooting squirrels he's a duck dog naturally and I like hunting quail and that's all I did for the longest time so like you said he just adapted to what it was now is that dog gonna go and and tree a squirrel no he's a retriever at the end of the day (laughs) he's just i shoot it you go get it you know but when i say versatile it means something totally different than what you are going to elaborate in and i think you have i think you have the knowledge and fundamental uh mindset you know like i think you know truly what a versatile dog is as it pertains to the larger community right you know uh and 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 it is a little bit different um because you'll hear some guys that'll say well you know like you're saying well he's a versatile dog because i take him hunting you know yeah we got some squirrels or we got a rabbit or something like that and so you say well he's versatile enough but there there is some very specific things that the versatile breeds do Mm -hmm. uh and and it it comes down to not being a specialist being kind of a jack of all trades but being very good at at all of them like you know i could take my dog he may not remember you know you can take a lap he'll remember five marks on ducks falling right uh short hair yeah maybe three (laughs) but to be honest do I shoot five ducks when I'm out there? <laughs> if I get one or two down, I'm a happy man. Right. So my dog does a good enough job to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's the kind of thing you look at. Uh, they they have certain capabilities. You know, they they should have a great nose. They should point staunchly. Uh, they should, you know, show a desire to search, uh, to track and retrieve on water or on, on land. Yeah, uh, that's what's bred into them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, when you get into breeding, um, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna skip over some hound stuff real quick, if you don't mind, because um, okay. I want to. I, I feel like hounds have a big impact on us bird dog guys, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna hop forward a little bit. When you get into breeding, um, specifically. On the Deutsch Kurtzars, I hope I said that right. And um, right. 
the American quote unquote short hairs. You know, I had a listener ask me what what's so different about them, and we were talking about this the other day. What what's been your experience there? The the real difference the real difference is the standards they are bred to. Mm-hmm. The the breeding standards on on the DKs is very strict. Yeah, and so you can't just like AKC. You can just go out get yourself two registered short hairs, breed them, and say you know, hey, he's a great short hair. But in the German system, in order for him to be a DK, he has to be tested and certified for breeding. And so, I mean, and there can be some things wrong, like if he doesn't pass the test, they'll stamp your papers not for breeding. Yeah. Yeah. So so that dog is out of the gene pool. Yeah. Uh, Well, where, you know, here we can breed whatever we want. Mm-hmm. But what's kind of happened here, they have some very basic standards on what the dog is supposed to be able to do. Of course, they have size standards, which is a little larger than our dogs. Yeah. And, you know, so they, they when they test their dogs, there's some very specific things they're looking for. Now, what we did over here was we took that same short hair or DK and we turned it into what we wanted. Okay, so let, so me, let me let me go off the rabbit tracks one more time. Mm-hmm. All right, so there has been a large discussion, and I, I, I'm gonna get under somebody's skin. You might know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> what when we quote unquote turned it into what we wanted to? Was there any interaction with pointers, English quote uh, pointers? Was there any of that mixed in? Do you think? Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was uh, part of, part of that was. I'll tell you, Americans like big running dogs. Yeah, you know they love those pointers. They like the way they covered ground and all that kind of stuff. The DKs that first came over were a little slower, uh, and still to this day, you know they're still a little bit slower. Uh, pointing with intensity, they didn't. We had bred that high tail in pointers, you know, mm-hmm. that you love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the DKs still don't point with a high tail. Some of it's, you know, 9 o'clock tails. Uh, some of the tail will be out and the end will kind of droop over. Uh, it, it's not the most stylish point, so they start sticking pointer in there to get what they wanted, the speed, the range. Um, and, and so, yeah, there are some dogs out there that their background is more pointer than you would think. Yeah. Okay, and and so we did that, and and a lot of it is on the field trial side mm-hmm. because they were running field trials. That's what they wanted. They wanted to see that kind of dog, and so that's what they did. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but now, but now look at look at it this way too. Is it a horrible thing? No, no. not necessarily. It's it's what we wanted out of the dogs. To yeah, be honest with you. Uh, if you've ever seen a black German short hair, uh, yep. one that's like black or black and white, that came from a pointer. There, the uh, the black that was originally in the breed back in the late 1800s when they were first forming the breed, that was all bred out. Yeah. And then the Germans said, well, hey, you know, we're starting to lose some eye color and some coat color here. We want to try to get that back. 
So they went out to the Arkwright pointer, which was a solid black pointer, and they brought that pointer in, and there were only, I think, one or two of them that were actually bred in, and there were only maybe half a dozen breedings. Yeah. And so what ended up happening, the, the black and white or black puppies that, that came out as a result were put on a separate registry from the liver and white dogs. Mm-hmm. And so for years, they were called Prussian uh, short hairs or Prussian DKs. And for years, they were kept on a separate registry. Wow. And it wasn't, it wasn't until, and so you could breed a liver and white dog to a black and white dog but you cannot breed two black dogs. Hmm. And so what happened is, like, like I said, every time they'd have puppies and the, you know, you get black ones out of there, they would go on a separate registry. And so I think it was about, gosh, it was about 30 years that they kept a separate registry. And then they finally felt that they had, you know, gotten those genetics where they were pretty much stable and, and the pointer influence wasn't going to create any issues and they brought the two registries together okay wow okay so i mean and this is it's it's interesting we're talking you know early 19th 20th centuries going you know going right into the transition um so that was a relatively modern uh not modern but a relatively recent innovation if you think about it i mean in in scope of within a hundred or so some years yeah i think i think that breeding was done i'm gonna try to get this right around 1912 yeah okay when when they brought in the arkwright pointer yeah so and then they split the registry Okay, but a lot was going on around then too, man. I'm reading this um, this book by A.F. Hotchwalt, uh, Bird Dogs and Their History and Achievements. Right, a lot. Those guys were coming over from Europe, and they were like little scientists, man. Like there was a lot, <laughs> there was a lot going on then, man. Um, right, and I and I think. I, it, it makes it, what you just said basically makes a lot of sense to me. Um, how they were starting to separate that, and you start to see um, where the different lines come in because there was also a thing in that same book about you know pointers coming from Spain and then hitting Spain to England and then England to America and what they were doing there, outcrossing blah 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 blah. Um, all of those guys were. It seems like they were really over here in America trying to establish themselves, you know, as right. a, a force in the bird dog world. Right. Um, and, and I think, like you said, uh, is it the worst thing in the world? Absolutely not. It's just what human beings decided to, you know, uh, the pursuit we decided to take on at the time, you right. know, and it doesn't and, seem and like what suited us, it, you know, it was kind of what suited us. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's the difference. We just didn't stay with what you know, what the, the original creation was. We adapted it to what we did here. I mean, if you look at Germany now, they have relatively small fields. Yep. Uh they don't have a lot of birds anymore. And so they a big running dog is a deficit over there. I mean, he's a problem because he's gonna run out of that field and maybe run across a road and get killed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and if you and so now they focus a lot more on fur than they used to because they don't have birds. So the dogs have kind of adapted. Uh, even their dogs have adapted. Yeah, yeah. So you know when we talk about fur and they do a lot of hogs too. From what I understand is fur is hog. They do a lot of different types of game that are alternative compared to these tests over here. But you mentioned that you don't really focus on fur um, in your training. Now, why is that? Well, it, it's it, again, it comes down to what I like to hunt. Okay. And I don't, you know, do it. I don't do the rabbit hunting. Actually, if I wanted to hunt rabbits, I would get beagles because I love to hear beagles run. You're right. But uh, so mainly what I focus on are birds and, and, you know, so bird dogs. But now the same thing with these with these versatile breeds, I could get my dogs to hunt rabbits. It wouldn't be difficult at all. Really, all I'd have to do is shoot a few rabbits for them, uh, you know, let them retrieve a few rabbits and then they would go look for rabbits for you. So it's really not it's still in them. Uh, We just don't focus on it as much. Right. Right. And and the the other thing is some some dogs might not because one of the things that happens is if you don't do it and you don't breed for it, then you'll lose it. Okay. So it is, and, and it's, that's it. You know that's a big thing. If you ever look at like dogs, you'll see some uh, field trial dogs, especially that won't retrieve. Yeah. You know, and and so you do have to force fetch them to get them to retrieve. They just don't want to retrieve. And it's just that they have bred the retrieve out of them by not focusing on the retrieve. Right. When you when you have a field trial dog, you think about it. The ones that win are the ones that stand like stones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, a dog that likes to retrieve is going to turn or move to mark the fall of the bird. He's going to watch that bird. He's going to want to know where it's going to go down. Right. All right. So he's not going to win over the dog that stands like a stone. Right. So if you keep breeding the dogs that don't care about retrieving, eventually you have dogs that just don't retrieve. They don't retrieve at all. Right. And that's been, I'm I'm so glad that you said that um, because that's been a thing for me, you know, with my pointer, my pointer retrieves naturally, actually, like Mm -hmm. I've never done the force fetch. I actually didn't do force fetch at all with either of my dogs. Um, I, I'm not opposed to it. Um, I've learned to not be opposed to it. And the reason I don't do it is because I work so hard early on with them as pups, just playing around and observing. Like with Vegas, I just sat down and let him run around my backyard. Next thing I know, he was picking up sticks and picking up this and he likes to hold and carry. Well, there's no need for me to force fetch him at that point. I I just, and and it, it kind of depends on what you want to do down the road. Right. Because, uh, now, see, like on the NAVDA side of things, when you're testing, the retrieve is tremendously important, mm-hmm. right? And how he makes the retrieve is important. So when I send a dog, when we get to a utility test level and I send a dog for a retrieve, he's expected to go out, pick up that bird. He's not, I mean, I've seen dogs, you know, he'll, they'll throw it up in the air, play with it, all that kind of stuff. Right. That's going to get you some points deducted. Right. But what you want him to do is go out, pick up that bird, bring it back, no chewing, no rolling it around in the mouth. You come back to me. Uh, you, he doesn't have to sit, but I make mine sit in front of me. And then you deliver the hand. When mm-hmm. I tell you to give, you let the bird go. 
Right. But if you're dropping it or doing any any of that kind of stuff during the test, you're going to get penalized. Right. So we, I, I do a trained retrieve, not a force fetch. Trained retrieve being teaching him how to retrieve the way I want it done. How do you go about doing it? Well, it's 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 similar to force fetch, but it's you don't have to put in as much effort because mm-hmm. these dogs generally have enough natural retrieve in them that you don't have to make them retrieve. But mm-hmm. I, I go through the steps. I teach him to hold first. You know, it's an inaction command, telling him to hold. You hold it in your mouth. You don't chew it. You don't roll it. You keep it there until I tell you to give. Right. And then once we have that down, and I use a lot of different things for him to hold, uh, all the way up to metal objects because most dogs don't like to hold metal. Oh, my God. Yep, that was and, a trick of mine <laughs> for my retriever. Right, so yep. I, I, <laughs> yep, I have them holding hammers and all kinds of stuff and usually finish up with, uh, I'll take like a, uh, a water bottle and I'll fill it half full so that it sloshes. And then I will, uh, you know, I'll give the dog the whole command and I will walk him with that and that water is sloshing back and forth. He's got to be able to hang on to it. Right. So, I mean, it's that sort of thing. And then we move on to the fetch command, which is an action command. When I say fetch, reach for whatever it is. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I do the fetch. He reaches for it. Once he picks it up, I give him the hold command. And he holds it until I tell him, you know, tell him to give. And eventually you chain, those two will chain together. So you can drop the hold command because he knows that as soon as you say fetch, you're going to say hold so he'll just hold. He'll just hold it anyway. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. That is, you know, I think that's that's a big thing for people is getting a dog to um, retrieve. It's it's very again. You make a good point. Also, um, it's something I've always thought about is is putting my dog in in the American field. He is very driven to retrieve. Even being a pointer, he'll stand nice and stuff like that. But I almost have to spend more time and not right now because he's so young, but I know down the road I'm going to end up spending time working on him not turning and trying to, you know, find birds. But I also think they're smart enough to know when to turn that on and when to turn that off. They know, you know, when we're being tested or when we're being trialed versus when we're out just hunting. Right. Exactly. Um, Exactly. They, they do. So, all right. So let's let's go um, a little bit into because I don't want to get down my list of questions without, you know, asking this. Now, your grandfather had hounds and that's been a big part of of dog, you know, hunting over dogs history. Do you think that the way that we've seen hounds throughout the history of America do you think that has left a larger impact than probably what we give it credit for in the bird dog world? Well, I, I think where it's really left an impact was in the training. Okay. Um, because, you know, a lot of guys I know, it's like, you just get a hound, you turn him out, you let him go. He doesn't, I mean, he's not going to listen to you anyway. He's, he's just right. going hunting. Uh, my grandfather trained hounds. Yeah. So, and I think coming out of the South, there was a little bit different mentality. Because uh, 
you know, the bird dog world was big down there, oh, and they huge. trained their dogs. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot, especially there were a lot of black trainers that were involved mm -hmm. that, you know, never really got any credit. Mm -hmm. And what they, what ended up happening, they were kind of like in the horse racing world, you know, the owners holding mm -hmm. the cup and getting all the praise. The Ooh. trainers standing, standing back there, nobody said anything. Man, you, you hit like three points that I love highlighting, but go ahead. <laughs> right. So... And so it's kind of the same thing. You had some black dog trainers that were hound trainers and that also transitioned that over into the way they trained bird dogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just didn't get a lot of credit for it. But I think, you know, I think it was always in there. If you're a dog guy, you're just a dog guy, mm -hmm. you know. And so, yeah, I think some of these guys that ran hounds and loved dogs, they, you know, it was a way to make a living. A little bit right. moving over and training bird dogs. So yeah, I think they brought a lot of that with them. Right, and it's you know, and speaking of that, first and foremost, you know, I'm a big horse racing junkie. Like that's been a thing that I uh, I spend a lot of time watching um, with my grandfather growing up and things like that. Um, you know, we would try to catch the Derby and things like that when they, you know when the season came around. But as I've gotten older. I noticed a common trend, right, in the in the horse racing world and in the bird dog world. Well, in the it, it was always something I noticed in the background. I even saw a couple of pictures. I went to the uh, the bird dog museum out in Grand Junction, and I, it was a great place, phenomenal place. But I would notice in the back of these pictures there were black guys. And they were the ones, I think there was a picture with like Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. And like, if I'm not mistaken, it was him. It was a black dude in that picture, you know, and he was the guy training dogs back on the plantation. That was, quote unquote, skilled labor, you know, to, to work those dogs, you know, working cotton was them folks came a dime a dozen. I hate to say it like that, but they did. Right, right. And um, in the horse racing world. The groomers, you think about the groomer for secretariat, this black dude. Right. You know, right. and I just noticed, man, like, there's so much influence coming, you know, from from our culture that hasn't really been, it's seen, but not really discussed. And that was something I, I, I felt was very important um, in doing this podcast, you know. Um, going down to Thomasville and, uh, you know, people here are probably tired of me talking about it at this point in time, but going down there and it's a whole different ball game, man. You know, the, the, the training, um, the knowledge and these guys, I don't know what it is coming out of the old school black guy's hands, but whatever it was, when they touch a dog, whether it was a hound or whether it was a bird dog, them dogs were polished. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they were yeah. polished. Go ahead. Yeah, what I was going to say was, you know, that's where you had people that could just read dogs. That's basically what it is, is reading your dog, you know, getting your dog to be able to do what you need him to do. And, and some of these guys, you know, that's all they spent their time doing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just getting that dog, understanding that dog, and getting him to do what they needed him to do. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that's just a big part of it, you know. And even today, 
one of the biggest things that I see with guys handling and training their dogs is they don't read the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that it could create a problem, uh, but it also means that you don't get as much out of your dog as you should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think in the versatile world, you know, every there's this larger goal to have a well-rounded dog, a versatile dog. Um, do you think people are trying to push their dogs too soon because the expectation is that by two years old, they're supposed to know how to, you know, do all point retrieve and do all of this over all kinds of game. Like, are we, are, are folks pushing versatile dogs too soon? No, I don't think so. In, in the versatile world, there's not as much of a competition atmosphere. And, you know, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about math and, I'll yeah. kind of get into that there. So yeah. it's not it's not a competitive uh, realm, basically. Mm-hmm. It, they all, everyone tries to help everyone. Okay. Uh, that that's the big thing, and kind of what makes NAPTA different. Right. There there is no, you know, I'm trying to outdo you, or I'm trying to win. Uh, when you go to a test, you're testing against a standard. You're not competing against someone else. So you could have 10 dogs that day, all 10 dogs get a prize one if they do prize one work. Right. Uh, so guys tend to want to help you more than anything else. And no, I don't think that, that they're pushing the dogs too fast. They allow the dogs to develop. Uh, I think in this country we're starting to, to focus on breeding dogs that have all those skills and they tend to mature quicker. Okay. Okay. Cool. And and you seen that um kind of as a role within NAVDA. Like I, I really like what NAVDA's done. Um I I doubt that I'm gonna participate in it, but I thoroughly like what they're doing. So do you think that NAVDA has kind of helped temper those expectations or or kind of helped uh you know refine it? Well, kind of what they basically, I guess, refined it because as the training methods have gotten better and, and more consistent, the dogs have shown that they will mature faster than people thought. Right. right. Um, and you kind of have to let the dog progress at its own pace. But I think that with the, the better training methods, I mean, there was a time when NABDA first started off, I, I heard a guy say that he'd been in NABDA since the beginning. And the first test that he went to, he said back in the you know late 70s, if your dog even passed in utility with like a prize two, uh, you I mean you're walking around with your chest stuck out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know because it was so difficult and it was so nobody really knew what they were doing too much. So then you know it got to the point here I don't know several years ago where. They had to start kind of limiting the number. If, if you get a prize one in a utility test and you're invited to the invitational, they had to kind of like start restructuring how you got there because so many guys were getting prize ones. Right. And, and it came down to one, they were, you know, selecting better dogs, and two, the training methods had just gotten better. Yeah. So it, it, it's a constant. You know, just like anything, you spend enough time with it, they'll they will evolve, and that's a that's definitely a, a really good thing. Um, right. 
And, I, and like I said, the, the thing about NAV, then I would encourage you to, you know, I mean, you don't have to get involved in, but I'd encourage you to go like to some training days. Oh, okay. To a NAV to test and, and just watch what goes on. I mean, the guys are really open. Yeah. They'll welcome you to come in and, and watch or whatever, but you can kind of see it. It's a community. Yeah. I mean, everybody's helping everyone. You know, just to give you a quick story, I was getting a dog ready for utility. And he was, I knew he was close. Yeah. I, there were still some things I needed to clean up. But uh, the test was about a month or so away. And I got injured. I cracked some ribs and did some stuff. And so I, I was struggling. Oh, man. And, and uh, but, you know, I was so determined I was going to get him there for the test. That next weekend, there I am on that training day. I'm out there at the field. But I could hardly raised the the lift gate on on the truck that i had and so, so some guys saw me and they came over like hey what you know what what's going on with you and i told them what had happened and and so they said well hey you know what we'll plant birds for you we'll gun for you we'll go out in the kayak and plant ducks for you nice. um you know they were going to do everything that required something physical and they said you just handle your dog yeah so we trained, you know, for the next couple of weeks with that. And then coming up, when we came to the test, when I walked to the line to run my dog in the field, I had this big gallery behind me. Wow. Of, of all these people who, who had, you know, who had helped. And they had a vested interest in what was happening with my dog and how he ran that day. Nice. And so the judge says, hey, are you sure you want all these people walking in the gallery? You know, because sometimes you can throw the dog off. It gets a little uncomfortable or whatever. And I just told him, I was like, if it wasn't for all these people, I wouldn't be here today. So if it throws him off, it just throws him off. But I'm letting him walk. Okay. And it, and it, didn't, it didn't bother him at all. He went on and did his, his, you know, what he did. He ended up with a prize one out of it. But... You know, it was that kind of community. They were just as happy as, as me, yeah. you know, but they felt they had a vested interest in what happened with him. Wow. And so it's just that kind of atmosphere. Everybody's trying to help everybody. All right. Speaking of folks helping everybody, Onyx Maps has a vested interest in your safety and locations and relationships with folks who really just care about where you're going when you're out in the middle of the woods. My wife definitely asked for my GPS coordinates and I can now share with her where I've been using waypoints, lines, shapes, tracks, and all the notes that I take along the way. So go download the Onyx Maps application and use the share feature today. Yo, that, okay. <laughs> I just stuck my foot in my mouth. That makes me want to get out there. <laughs> yeah, well, you should go see, I'm telling you, you should go see it. You know, go to a training day and then go to a test to see what the dogs actually do when they're, you know, completed. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's definitely worthwhile. The first test I ever went to, you know, I kind of stumbled into uh, a NAVDA test going on. And they said, hey, yeah, stay and watch. And I watched it. And I was, like, amazed. I was like, I didn't know a dog could do all those things. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was just stunned. Wow. Okay. That is really cool. I mean, but in see, it's stories like that, man, that make me continue to brag on this community, right? Like, I'll be out, um, and for guys that's trying to come in, I tell them, like, yo, there is plenty of help out there. 
you know, there are plenty of resources for people that do want to help. The bird dog world is actually very, very open. You get a couple knuckleheads here and there. Um, But that story alone is a testament to, number one, the organization. So I I, I do want to say, you know, a shout out to NABDA for that. But then also it shows that people are really invested in the dogs that we're, you know, um, you know, working towards in, in, in whatever community that you want to get into, whether because I've I've had similar, you know, interactions with uh, the Georgia, Florida uh, shooting hand the black trailers down south. Right. Like they want to help you. You know, I've had right. similar um, interactions with some field trailers, um, you know, Tommy Rice and all of them. I just had him on. You know, these guys are welcoming and want to have you in there. So, I mean, that's that's dope, man. Well, continuing on to, you know, NABDA and some of the, the, the good folks in the organization, you um, I had a guy reach out to me a couple of days ago. Matter of fact, he met you. He said you you really helped his dog, um, Brandon Whitfield. Uh, I don't right. know if you remember him, but he was from the uh, the Mo Uplands. Yeah, right. Missouri Uplands. Um, right. Talk about how that day went, man. Like, what did you do that that got him all excited? Well, it, it was just the sort of thing. Again, you know, by it being a community. Now, I'm not a member of that chapter. I'm a member of the uh, MoCan chapter, Missouri-Kansas chapter. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, farther, a little bit farther west. You're out but, there with uh, Press Holt. Um No, I'm actually in the Kansas City, you know, right in Kansas City. But okay. the, the Missouri Uplands chapter is farther east. It covers, like, um, St. Louis and Columbia, Missouri. Okay. You okay. know, farther east. Uh but now the guy that I've known for a long time, and I've gotten dogs from him, and in fact this puppy that I have now came from him, uh, he's a member of that chapter, and so he said, hey, come out and train with us. So I, you know, took the pup and went out there and trained. Well, you know, that's the thing. You don't just go and take your dog and train your dog and then go home. Right. You go out and train your dog and you help other people. Right. So that's basically what was going on. Uh, and so I, what I did out there that day was just, you know, kind of show them some of the techniques that I use in training to get a dog to do something. And like I told you before, I, I try to use as little force as possible. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of showing them, hey, you know, if you do this, the dog will naturally respond this way. Yeah. And, and then one of the other things I do is if I see like an issue with the dog, I've done it enough so that I usually can tell you kind of what you need to do to get that dog around that issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what happened. I, I can't remember what specifically was going on with his dog, but, you know, if, if he was, you know, whatever his issue was, I try to give them my experience on how I got the dog around that. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, it, he, he made it a point to, to, make sure he said hello to you um, and to deliver that message. So, I mean, you've left some pretty significant impacts. And and speaking of which, man, talk about your dogs. You know, we we haven't even gotten there. We'll get back to the training. But, you know, you've got utility dogs, man. And you've had short hairs for, you know, a a good minute now from, you know, what I remember. Talk about your dogs. Yeah. 
Well, I've been into the short hairs now probably about 20 years. Okay. Uh, it's kind of funny how I got there. I mean, like I told you, I grew up hunting with beagles. Uh, I, got out, I got out of dogs for a while, and I was doing a lot of tournament fishing and running around, you know, doing that thing for a while. And then I, uh, I kind of got out of that, and I was working with a guy who had a bird dog and he was hunting preserves and I'd go out with him and then he got transferred away and I still wanted to go hunting. So I said, you know what? I, back when I was a kid, I used to, I was kind of like you, I'd see that pointer out there, man. And he just looked magnificent yeah. you know, out there, standing <laughs> like a stone in the field. And I'd see that on TV, you know, wide world sports, different stuff like that. And I always wanted one. And I told my father, I said, why don't we get one of those? And he was like, well, the problem is, you know, he worked a lot. Uh, pheasant season in Michigan was, I think, 15 or it might have been 20 days long. Mm-hmm. So that's only a couple of weekends. Yeah. So to train a dog to only use for a couple of weekends didn't really make sense. Right. So, I mean, and I understood that. So we went on with our beagles. But when I came back to hunting, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get myself a pointing dog. Yeah. And so I started looking around, and one of the things that kind of, you know, stuck out to me was, well, short hairs can do the job. I'd seen some short hairs. Uh, when I looked at the breed, they're relatively healthy. There's very few health issues in the breed. Uh, you can, you know, even if you got to clean them up, you just kind of turn the hose on them, lather them up, rinse them off, rough them up with a towel, and you're done. Right. Easy. So, yeah. So... <laughs> That's that's kind of how I got into it, and so I picked that as a breed. Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up getting a dog, and it's kind of interesting. I got a dog that was like half DK and half American short. Oh, wow. Now, one <laughs> of the issues that I ran into, and I don't want to insult any of the DK guys, but one of the issues I ran into, like the DKs, a lot of them will have huge prey drive. Right. And... But they breed a lot of control into their dogs. Well, sometimes if you breed that huge prey drive to the American dogs where we didn't breed all that control, you get all the prey drive and you don't get the control. Okay. So that's what I had. There was a a short hair and he was bred quite a bit and he was uh, Orson von Potsiepen. And now if you bred Orson to another DK, the puppies were great. Right. If you bred Orson to an American dog, you had some wild puppies. <laughs> and, okay. And, and and I had one of them. And uh, man, he was a handful. I loved the dog to death. He was great. He'd give you a hundred percent all the time. But he was a wild one. Yeah. So when he was about a year old, he started going through separation anxiety, and I, I didn't. I don't know what triggered it or whatever, but he was in the house. He would go crazy. He would pull the molding off the wall. What? That's how upset he would be if you left him. And so if you put him in a kennel, then he would batter his nose against the kennel until it was bloody. So I was like, man, this is crazy. But the veterinarian I had at the time, he was a real dog guy. All right. And I mean, probably behavior wise, one of the best people i've ever known he trained schutzen dogs though. okay oh that's a whole nother level of work but right yeah right yeah so he he gave me some tips on how to get the dog passed 
this separation anxiety. And one of the things he said was like, you can get him a pet, you know, so he doesn't feel so alone when he's at home. Right. So I start looking around, like, ah, I'm going to get another dog. It might as well be a hunting dog. Mm-hmm. And I looked in the back of hunting dog journal uh, and there was uh, Fred Rice, Sundance Kennels, and mm-hmm. he was advertising this breeding he was doing. And I talked to Fred and, you know, kind of went through the whole thing and kind of decided that this is the way I wanted to go. So I ended up putting a deposit on the pup. And he sent me a video of the pups when they were like five weeks old or something. And these were the calmest little puppies I'd ever seen. And I thought, this is what I want. So I ended up getting one of those. But now here's the trick. And I always talk about Fred for this. Because he he was really high on that litter, and he felt he could get a master breeder award, yeah. and have the master breeder award out of that litter. So he said, "I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a fifty dollar break on the price of the dog if you agree to test him natural ability." Oh, nice! So I'm like, fifty bucks is fifty bucks, and now you're talking nineteen ninety nine. So <laughs> fifty bucks went a little bit farther. Yeah, uh, man. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I said, okay, great deal, you know. Now, the problem was when I went to sign him up for natural ability, it cost me 65 bucks to get in. Mm-hmm. I'm already 15 behind. Yeah. I'm thinking I'm getting a great deal, <laughs> and I'm already getting behind. <laughs> yeah. And, and then when I start buying birds to train him on and all the gas I burn getting to the fields and all, I'm like, man, I'm in a hole here. So... uh you know, but I said, you know, I, I gave my word I was going to do it. I am going to do it. Yeah. So I ran him natural ability. He did a tremendous job, got a prize one. And I thought, OK, I'm done. You know, I fulfilled my obligation. Mm-hmm. Well, after after they had read the scores and all, the senior judge came over to me and he said, you know, I really like this dog. I think you've got a great dog here. I'd like to see you take him and train him for another year, get him ready for utility and bring him back and test him. He said, I think this dog has got it. Wow. So now I'm thinking, well, here's a guy who's seen hundreds of dogs. And he thinks this dog has got it. So if the dog doesn't turn out well, it's probably not the dog. It's probably me. <laughs> so yeah. So I started training and, you know, got into it. And after that, I was just kind of hooked. Yeah. You know, and just really got into it and watching the dogs develop and, you know, that whole thing. So that's kind of how I got into it. But I always blame Fred for costing me all this money. <laughs> well, I'm going to thank Fred for for, getting, <laughs> for uh, being one of the guys that got you the dog because uh, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. <laughs> So I um, and, and that that question actually came from another listener. I got I had a lot of listener feedback um, when I posted that you were on. It was a gentleman named Partice, um, okay. and he wanted to kind of talk about DKs and 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 uh, short hairs and things like that. So you actually answered that um, very thoroughly. <laughs> so right. yeah, the, the only. The only thing that I would say, because I, I don't really feel ability-wise there's any difference, because uh-huh. uh, I've hunted over DKs. I know guys who have them. Uh, there was a big trend for a while with the guys over here, especially Navi guys. They were like, we're going back to the motherland. We're going to get the most versatile dog ever, you know, which coming right from Germany is going to be DKs. And a lot of them found that 
there really wasn't a whole lot of difference. Yeah. You know, ability-wise, like I said, there's some standard differences. There's a little bit of a temperament difference. The, mm-hmm. the, the DKs tend to be, I think, more mild-mannered right. dogs, you know, around home. But uh, if you get in the right American bred short hair, you, you can get that as well. Yeah, man. So I hear a lot of folks talking about the American bred short hairs are loud dogs. Like, they holler a lot. Yeah. You know, now is that a temperamental thing that's just breeding or is that just a trait of just what it is? No, it's kind of it, it's it's kind of a trait of breeding. When when you look again at what we did with the DK over here and we tried to turn him into a we tried to turn him into a pointer in some cases. Yeah. yeah. Uh so they started breeding more and more high strung dogs. I mean, but you need that kind of drive and, and hyperness to, you know, run for an hour. Oh, you do. You know? I... And, and, and so that's that's kind of what you got, what came along with it. Right. So when you hear about these short hairs, they're bouncing off the walls, they're doing all this kind of stuff. It, a lot of it is just that if you if you move away from the field trial dogs and kind of get to the NAVDA dogs, these dogs sit around the house like, you yeah. know, like any other pet. Right. And, and I noticed that. So my pointer, I mean, that joker... He's he is he prob I mean if I spent the time to quote unquote make him a house dog, mm-hmm. I probably could. My lab was great when he was in the house. I don't keep either of them in there any anymore. Um I've okay. since built my own outdoor kennel. Um okay. and I'm still always improving on it. But my pointer, man, that joker does not sit down. And I didn't want right. a, a a a calmer dog. Like right. it's not a bad thing. I think there is a a stigma that comes with pointers that, oh, they're just so rambunctious and out of control. Well, I mean, think you, like you said, think about what they are, what they were bred for, you know, where they're coming from um, and what the uses for are, you know, when I go down to South Georgia, all the guys that I meet, their pointers honestly remind me of my own. They just kind of everywhere. Um, Yeah. And and, and and see the th- the thing is, you know, you got that pointer. It's got a ton of energy. You're basically holding it back. Yeah. You know, it wants to it wants to burn that energy, mm-hmm. and, and you're holding it back. So that's where that whole hyper kind of thing comes from. Right. Right. Uh, but again, in order to run field trials, if you're going to run hour stakes, think about the Ames Plantation. You got a dog's got to run for like three hours. Right. Then if he's not wound up and full of energy, he's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. You know, even. You know, I've been talking to you quite a bit over the last few weeks about, um, you know, my training and just some of the things that I've been, you know, going through and doing and and things like that. Well, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the things I pointed out was I actually dropped the check cord. I stopped holding it while I was training because I'm doing a lot of pigeon pole work. And I let go of the check cord because it was it was causing me more uh, more of a hindrance. Right. And because what was happening was the dog was he would point his birds, but the points he seemed a little more hesitant. And I I, I think he felt that I was still connected to him. But I dropped the check cord, let him, you know, do his laps, do his laps. And I'll go and take the pigeon pole, put the pigeon, you know, in some pretty thick brush. Next thing I know, that dog is pointing, you know, at a, at, for a puppy, a pretty good distance away, you know. Right. And 
that tail set is back, you know, back how I wanted it. Um, I just think it's it's what he requires. Right. You know, well, you know, here's the thing. If you're holding the check cord, he knows you're back there. Right. And he knows you're holding the cord. So if you think about it, uh, in his mind, it's like I would go. But I know Darrell's holding me. Mm-hmm. You know, so he learns, you know, he's got to learn to stand on his own. Right. I mean, you can't make him stand. He's got to learn to stand on his own. And, and that, you know, that's one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about. And we can get to it in a minute here. Yeah. But you, you, the dog has to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is set him up to make the choice you want him to make. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's going to know, you know, when you mentioned to me about flagging and that kind of thing, um, there's a couple kinds of flagging as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, go ahead. There is there's genetic flagging. There's some dogs that just flag genetically, okay? But 90% of those dogs that flag, it is come from training. And it's not, it's not necessarily that somebody did something wrong, but it's caused by uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, if you think about when the dog doesn't know what's coming next, then he will flag. That tail is just telling you, I'm not exactly sure. If you've ever seen a dog come up on a bird, he doesn't exactly know where the bird is. He smells him, but he doesn't know exactly where he is enough to really lock him down yet. And you'll see his tail flag. Yeah. But as soon as he figures out exactly where that bird is, he'll stiffen right up. And, you know, if he's been worked on birds before, then he knows what's coming next. Mm-hmm. So he's locked down hard now. Yeah. But when he's unsure, and especially on a young dog, because he hasn't had any experience, when he's unsure, you know, they'll flag. Yeah. And I, I noticed that. So I would record it. And you spot on, I would record those instances and... He would fly, and then we're we're talking to, at this point a month and some change ago. But he would flag, and I would see him look at me, right, and then exactly. look back at the area, and then look at me again. I was like, "Huh, okay." He's not sure, like you say. I mean, he's just not sure. Um, it took for me to change the training technique that I was using. Um, that was a big part of it. Um, and I want to get on the launchers in a second too, because that, that's been something you, you and I have been talking about also, but for me, the pigeon pole worked and what I mean, I have two of them. Um, I have one that I would, that I, I took from Bud Moore, um, the short one, I call it a short pole and the tall pole, what I call it is a 20 foot PVC pipe with an eye hook in the top with a long uh, camo nylon wire. And that's why I attached the bird to Um, just to get him going. And it's not a, it's not a all the time thing, but it works to kind of, you know, get that engine back going and and get him going in the right direction. Um, That was a Neil Carter thing. And so what I've done since, um, and and it worked, I don't, you know, I don't know what you think about it, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Um, Okay. I started with a short pole, tether the bird, and let him run, 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 without me being on the check cord, without a pinch collar, without any of that. Right. Um, put the bird in the bush, let him go, boom, he'd lock on point. I noticed immediately that tail set changed. 
right. Um, and then I would raise the bird up and down, up and down, up and down, real slow. You know, just okay. so he's kind of like, okay, now we're in the game. Right. You do that for about what? two weeks. Okay. And then afterwards, I would take that tall pigeon pole, do the same thing, but instead, now I I, I hammer like a piece of rebar into the ground, and, and the pole is black. Um, so okay. it's a little bit shaded, a little bit, and that that nylon wire is like fifty feet, so he's not really around. Same project, same same thing. The reason the bird is tethered is just because I, I I don't trust my birds will home just quite yet. Yeah, come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just don't like they're getting there, but they ain't quite there yet. Um, right. And I noticed I was starting to solve the flagging problem, but like you said earlier, I blame that on user error, not the dog. Right, right, right. Yeah, he just he didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. You know, and you see, and that's why he, you know, he point the birdie, turn around, look at you. What's coming next? Yeah. You know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. That's not really that hard of a problem to solve. You know, and it's not like a bad mistake. I mean, I've seen some bad mistakes on dogs, but that's <laughs> not one of them. You know, that's yeah. That's not one. Um, I just I trained with a guy again at the uh, uh, Missouri Upland chapter, and he had sent his dog away to a trainer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm out working with the guy. Dog comes around, and it was real tentative on wanting to establish point. I could tell it smelled the bird, didn't really want to point, or it would point and then move off. Right. And then when it did come up and point, you know, so I was starting to get some ideas already. But then when it did come up and point, uh, the dog pointed, and he said, "Whoa!" And that dog left that bird. <laughs> what? And yeah, and I said, you know. I don't know who you sent this dog to, but whoever it was has been very hard on this dog. Yeah. And that's what was happening. And I'm sure he was either using an e-collar or he was physically, you know, reprimanding the dog and he was telling it to whoa and stand there. And so the dog was just like, hey, you know, I find a bird. I get in trouble. Right. I'm just going to leave. And so I told him, you know, the best thing you can do for that dog now, I, I said, I would even pull flight feathers on the bird, let the dog come around. As soon as I knew it smelled it, I'd launch the bird, let it flutter down, you know, 30, 40 yards away. Let's let the dog go have it. Go right. catch it. Right. You know, let's, let's try to get that enthusiasm back. Right. Uh, but, and, and that's unfortunate. Now, see, whoever was training it, that was a bad mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And see, I, um, yeah, wow. See, I, I never got that far. <laughs> I, yeah. never, I don't ever want to get that far. No, no. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I just think, man, that when you problem solve, the best thing we can do is, is take our time. Like you say, observe. Um, he's a young dog, man. They make mistakes. They do. Right. It's just like being in school. You you mess up. You 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 practice, 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 and then you want to pull out a quiz or a test, and sometimes you bomb that bad boy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and, and you know, you kind of mentioned about launchers, and I don't know if you want to go into that. Yeah, now. let's do it. Okay. And, and the, the reason I use launchers, launchers for me are. It's like, I mean, I understand what you're doing with the pigeon pole, mm-hmm. and you're basically doing the same thing I'm doing with a launcher. Right. But it's I can do it instantaneously, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, with corrections, timing is everything. Right. So I can correct the dog instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is if he's running and he hits a bird, you know, 100 yards out, 75 yards out or whatever, you can't get to the pigeon pole if you need to correct him instantaneously. Right. You see what I'm saying? So I but I can press that button. And that bird's gone. And so that's why I use launchers, because I can do it in an instantaneous way. And and that's kind of the way I start training with my dogs, even Mm -hmm. to get them to point, Mm -hmm. is, you know, I will... Well, let me back up just a little bit. If I'm starting with a puppy, when he's eight, nine weeks old and I first get him, I'm going to spend the first week with him just bonding with him. Mm -hmm. The second week, we're going to start training. And it's just little stuff, teaching him to come when I call him. And I will also start to teach him whoa at that point. Right. And, and it's very simple. You know, you're just sitting in the floor playing with him. I catch him in the front and the back and say, whoa, let him hold for a couple seconds, release him and praise him. Right. And, and you do that three times a day for about a week. And the next week when you say whoa and he's walking around, he'll just stop and stand. Right. And so then what I do while I'm, you know, teaching him to come and teaching him, whoa, while we're out in the backyard sometimes, I'll, I'll usually keep a couple of, like, quail in a little cage in the garage. Mm-hmm. I'll go get that cage. I'll bring it out. I'll sit it down there for him in the yard, let him get after the quail. And, you know, he gets excited. They're fluttering around. He's trying to get them. I leave him for maybe two minutes. I pick him up and take him away while he's still excited about it. Right. These are those unconventional methods you were talking about. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so I do that, and then by the time we've got come and we've got woe down, now he's you know eleven, twelve weeks old. We're ready to go to the field, and I will put I'll move the pigeons or chuck or something bigger than a quail because quail sometimes the puppy doesn't even see. I mean, when they flush, they're so fast and and small. Mm -hmm. But I'll take a pigeon, I'll put him in a launcher. I'll work the puppy in just, you know, getting him going the direction I want, crosswind. As soon as he acknowledges he smells the bird, you know, you'll see his head turn to the bird. I pop the bird and let it go. I don't say anything to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of times of that, you'll see him trying to stop when he smells the bird. Right. So then the next time I'll let him stop and he'll point. But as soon as he lifts a foot, to go to the bird, I pop the bird and the bird gets away. Okay. He will hold longer and longer. What I'm trying to make him believe is that it's his movement that makes the bird get away. Gotcha. So, okay. Right. So now he's going to stop and point, but in his mind, he's still trying to figure out how to get this bird. That's the only, that's the whole thing. You know, guys think pointing is something magical. It's not. He's mm-hmm. just stalking the bird. And, you know, he's trying to figure out how to get to it. Right. So when I get him where he'll stand long enough to let my helper walk up to there, kick around once or twice in the grass, we'll launch the bird, we'll shoot it, and we'll just let him go have it. Mm -hmm. And that is a critical point. So I always have the the helper carry like a freshly killed bird in in his bag. And in case he misses that one, he can throw the, the, the dead one and the dog still gets his reward. Right. 
So what begins to happen now, the next time he might break because he thinks, oh, I just got a bird. Maybe I can catch this next one. But we launch it and it gets away. He'll go back to pointing. When he goes back to pointing, we shoot another bird for him and let him have it. Mm -hmm. And it only takes a few times of that for him to get that, to work that out in his mind. Stand, I get a bird. If I move, I don't get anything. Right. So he will stand just because he wants that bird. You know, he's always going to do what gets him the bird. Right. Right. And that makes, I mean, that's spot on, man. Um, and it's just refining that, that, like you said, that stalking instinct. Um, right. You know, with the launchers, because so I have my, you know, I have a launcher downstairs that you know, I was using for a second. Um, I'm, yeah, I like them because, again, like you say, you have that remote access to it. Um, I felt like there was a bit of a learning curve for me before I wanted to, you know, bring it out on dogs. Um, okay. and, and it was like it was mostly timing. Mm-hmm. So what I would notice is I was I was hitting that launcher a, 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 a couple of like a second or two too late because you've got to hit it. If that dog catches scent you know right. you you see him catch it or whatever and and turn into the scent i was i wasn't quite sure whether it, right. he was sure it was scent or if he was like oh okay i'm i'm i don't know what that is quite yet you know i'm interested in bringing it back out right um now that i've got well, go ahead the, the thing to realize is that dog's nose is a thousand times better than yours he knew what it was mm mm-hmm. mhm you know, he knows what it is. And so the timing, what I find most people do in the, uh, the timing area, they, they're trying to wait to see if the dog is going to point. Yeah. Is he going to move a little closer and then stop? Well, maybe a little bit closer and then stop. Well, no, don't give him that opportunity. Yeah. You know, when he when he acknowledges the bird, he's facing that launcher where he's going to see it go that early on. That's the time to pop it. Right. Right. Now, with the launcher, have you... Have you had an issue with, you know, your birds, namely pigeons, because they get lazy, but your pigeons going up and coming right back down? Usually not in the launchers. You usually pop them, if, unless they're young pigeons. You'll see that a lot of times with young pigeons. Yeah. But if they've been out and flown and they're pretty strong, when you pop them up in the air, they're going to take off and go. Okay. Now, are you, and this was something that we covered in a... Uh, a podcast with my buddy uh, Joe Plody. We were talking about spring tension. Now, are you adjusting the spring tension to make it way lighter, or are you just letting them letting them pop? I let them pop. Okay. There's, you know, the Dogtra launchers, which I like the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can adjust the spring tension. Yeah. But I, I just don't see any reason to go to the low spring tension. What I generally do, your dog is old enough where the sound of the launcher is not going to bother it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some dogs that are maybe a little sound sensitive or puppies, you know, little puppies, yeah. uh, that pop that startles them, that, that could be an issue. So, you know, I could see you maybe adjusting the spring tension. But what I do, uh, usually with a small puppy, before I ever start working them on launchers, I will sit my launchers out in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And let him, 
you know, he's roaming around out there. He's smelling them. He's seeing them. And when he's not really paying attention to them I, and he's a little ways off, I'll pop one. Pop him. And, you know, I'll do that a few times so he gets used to the noise. Most times it doesn't bother him at all. Kind of like uh, gun breaking him. Right. Yeah. yeah basically. Yeah. Um, now, the other reason, you know, I asked about spring tension, there's the argument that a lower spring tension is a better simulation of a, a flushing bird. Does it matter that? Do you, do you think a dog cares that much? No, I really don't. I mean, I, I've never seen I mean, every bird I've ever kicked up, he gets up in the air and gets the heck out of there. Yeah. Uh, you know, so when this bird pops up and his wings open, he's getting out. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's probably as close to, you know, simulating a wild bird as you can get. Okay. Yeah. I, um, you know, th- there's always the, uh, you know, the alternative thoughts and things like that. And I like to, to hear, uh, you know, how people are going about it. So I got a, a, a couple of questions if you can hang in there with me. Sure. So going back to versatile training, there's the aspect of retriever training. There's like a, a, a small aspect of retriever training that goes in there if you, if you uh, follow where I'm going. And you spoke right. to Tillis Calhoun, which is a, right. a, a, another big heavyweight in the retriever world. Um, right. What were some of the things that you were talking to him about, and how do you think that translates to versatile dog training? Well, there, there's two things that I've gone to, to Tillis for, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, like you said, he has a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience. Uh, the first one was I had noticed I had one dog that was a phenomenal marking dog. I mean, you could knock down a bird, uh, and he knew he went to the exact spot. Right. Uh, and and he even pulled that off in some hunt tests where the bird fell over a hill and he marked where it was going and he went over the hill and within a few seconds he's coming back with the bird. Right. Uh, it, but then I've had other dogs, and even since him, that didn't mark that well. And so I talked to tell us about it, but you know, you know, because that's a big deal in the retriever world uh, with the dogs marking. Yeah. And so basically, what he told me was, you know, just some drills, basically that you can do to improve the dog's marking ability. Mm-hmm. And and they're simple things. You know, it's like you have a person that's fifty yards out or whatever. And they're throwing the dummy off to the side. They throw the dummy off behind them. They throw the dummy in front of them and let the dog get used to, to judging distance. Yeah. And he said the other thing is he always wants his dogs looking out. Everybody stands, you know, behind the dog or whatever and throws the dummy. And the dog is kind of looking at you and the dummy. He said, but he always wants his dogs looking out. So they're looking at a waypoint, you know, distance wise yeah. to see the dummy fall. Right. And so I'm just really kind of starting that with my pup. Okay. Uh, and, and the other thing I, I ran into an issue and we kind of talked about it. My dog didn't like dummies. Yeah. He wouldn't, he wouldn't retrieve them. You know, you could get him to make maybe one or two retrieves and then he didn't want anything else to do with them. And I thought, this is weird. And in, in his natural ability test, they're going to throw dummies in the water and he's expected to go out and swim and get mm-hmm. the dummy. So how am I going to get him to do that if he doesn't like dummies? Right. So I called Tellus and I asked him, you know, had he ever run into that before? And, and his comment to me was, well, how old is the puppy? And I told him, well, he's, you know, four, four and a half months old. And he said, well, he's probably teething and it may hurt to pick up the dummies. 
Mm -hmm. And I never thought of that. And he said, let him get done teething and then go back to the dummies. And so now he seems to like dummies. He's he's gotten through the teething thing, and now I'm throwing dummies for him. He's going to get them. Mm -hmm. So it just comes down to, you know, you can always learn something new. Yeah. And, and so on the versatile side of things, like I said, the retrieve is important. Uh, so transferring that information over is, you know, kind of helping me through the issue I had. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, and that translates, um, I'm, I've kind of scattered listener questions in here. So this is my last one, but, um, Homer, um, he asks, how do you diversify your training so your dog understands the type of situation, whether it be waterfowl or upland? Is that something like it? I guess it's kind of a vague question, it seems to me. But is there like a, a, a schedule or regimen that you do? Do you alternate days? Like, how do you go about that? No, not really, because, you know, the dogs, it's, it's really more exposure okay. than anything. Yeah. Uh, the dog learns to search on land. Uh, when you start working him on duck searches, he'll learn to search in the water. He'll use the same skills. You know, it, it, and that is just teaching him. You get him convinced, yeah, if I send you there, something out there for you to retrieve. Just go search for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really not a huge amount of difference yeah. in the things that they do. It's, it's more exposure. You know, sit your dog in a duck blind. And, you know, they'll, they'll tend to sit there with you. Uh, and let him, you know, you shoot ducks, you send him out, you'll go, you'll go get them. Right. Uh, the only other thing that I can really say, I have a friend that does a lot of duck hunting. And so he teaches, you know, handling drills like you would with a retriever. Right. Uh, you know, I could do this so he can direct him into the area if he needs to. Right. But other than that, it's mostly, I mean, there's really not much difference. It's just, you expose him to it and, uh, you know, that's one of the unique things and one, something I wanted to kind of touch on before we finished up on, about a versatile dog Yeah, is uh, is his ability to shift gears, mm-hmm. which is really what stands out to me about a versatile dog is his ability to do the job and adjust to whatever it takes. So if you've seen dogs like sometimes you have dogs, they basically have one range sometimes pointers, sometimes setters. I mean, if he's a big running dog, he's always he's a big, big running, running dog. dog yeah. Uh, or if he's a close working dog, he's always a close working dog. But versatile dogs will tend to adjust their range depending on what you're hunting. Mm-hmm. So like I could take my dogs out to Montana and hunt them uh, on the short grass prairie out there and they'll run at 400 yards, 500 yards all day. Yeah. Then I could turn right around the next week and hunt them on rough grouse in Michigan in the thick, you know, in the thickets and stuff. And they'll they'll hunt at 35 to 50 yards. Right. And you don't really have to say anything to them. Right. They just know know the game. Then you come they, down they south. They make the adjustment. You hunt them on it a few times, and they figure out what it takes to put the bird in the bag, and right. that's what they'll do. Right. So it's it's that mental shift, and that's one of the things that you'll see if you go to a nab to test is how the dogs make that adjustment from one event to the next. Okay. And and it's their ability to shift gears and focus on the task at hand that, that really makes them versatile. Right. Okay. Okay. So in light of that, you know, talk about, 
you know, probably the most, what would we, we talk about, these holy grail hunts? You mm-hmm. know, have you ever had one of those with any of your dog? Talk about that. Probably. Well, yes, I have. I, I mean, and I've been blessed to have some really good dogs. And so there have been times that really stuck out in my mind. I mean, uh, Montana is one of my favorite hunts mm-hmm. uh, for sharptails and Hungarian partridge. I mean, it's big, wide open prairie. And I mean, you get the dogs out there running and all of a sudden he slams it to a point. I mean, it's just a thing of beauty. Yeah. But when, when the bird numbers are good and he's out there hammering birds and pointing and you're getting a chance to shoot, I mean, that to me um, is probably the best hunt you can take. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've, you know, there, there are moments from those hunts that really stand out. The dog that I told you was a great market dog. I, one time, um, I had a pup with me and I had him and we were walking and the pup got into a covey of Huns and busted the covey and she took off chasing them and went but i know that on prairie birds a lot of times there's a straggler right so i start hustling up there now this dog stopped at the flush and stood i hustled up there and sure enough uh another hun gets up and he was a little ways out he was probably 40 yards out i shot at him twice he kept flying i said ah okay i missed him well he flew probably another 150 yards or so maybe 200 yards, and then he just went straight up and dropped like a stone. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I was like, so I got one pellet in him somewhere. Yeah. And, and so, but I'm thinking, you know, I'll never find this bird, right? Yeah. Because it's just, everything looks the same. When you're out there, there are no trees. There's no nothing to get, like, a mark for yourself, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of tell diff- distance. So I was like, well, but this is what I raise him for. So I just turned around and I told him to fetch. And he was at that point probably 30 yards behind me. And I sent him. He took off. He ran out there. He ran all the way out, actually a little past where I thought the bird went down. And he made like a little half circle and he just reached down and picked it up. What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I was, I, I mean... I couldn't have been prouder of that retrieve. It was almost unbelievable, you know, that he could mark it that far. Yeah. And go right to it. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, that that's one of those things. Uh, you know, I've hunted South Dakota and had great pheasant hunts. Uh, I remember one where I was standing in one spot and I released the dogs. They went in and started working birds. And I stood in that one spot and shot a lemon. Wow. Uh, never moving. Okay. And so, I mean, some of those hunts, you know, I really remember, and they were great hunts. Uh, but the, what I remember the most, though, always is the dog work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, that's the most important thing about it, man. And I, um, that's one of the reasons I'm, and I, I just told you, but I'm, I'm planning, tentatively planning on making it out to Kansas this year. Um, you know, I hope if you can get out there, we can get a chance to, to hang out. And I'm hanging out with um, another buddy. He's got setters, uh, Paul Cook. So we've been kind of chatting about that as well. But I'm trying to have those same kind of memories with this young dog, you know. Right. Um, and and get him exposure. I think fundamentally, the, the final exam for my dogs is going to be getting out there and learning 
how to maneuver those birds. Right. You know, um, right. if we don't get any other work done, man, I just want him to get that final, that, that, that icing on the cake, if you will. Right. You know, and, and well, do that. The, the thing is, you know, pheasants are the toughest bird for a pointing dog to handle. Mm-hmm. Because they run, they don't cooperate, uh, you know. And so what ends up happening, a lot of times with a puppy, they'll frustrate a puppy. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you've trained him on birds that will sit there. And now all of a sudden you've got a pheasant that's going to run, he's going to stop, he's going to slip out from under the point, run some more. You know, so sometimes it can frustrate him. But when you, it's sort of like finishing school for the dog. Yep. And, and he learns, when he starts to learn to handle that pheasant, you know, that running pheasant, and different dogs will do it different ways, but they will do what gets them a bird right. again. And so once they figure it out, figure out how to hunt them, I've seen some dogs that if the bird starts to run, they'll break off, swing way around, get out in front of the bird, and come back yeah. and pin the bird between you and the and, and you know than him mm -hmm. so you know and that you can't teach that's just that's that's street um, smarts yeah i i had one dog that was a tremendous tracking dog he was going to work that feather until he finally got him to pin and sit there yeah all right but then another dog that i had he somehow figured out how to get in really tight on pheasants not tight enough to flush them but too tight for them to get up and run so when he pointed a pheasant, that bird was right there. Oh, wow. Now, how he figured it out, don't know. <laughs> but, but, those, but those are the things. They figure out a way. It, it, you know, this goes back to what I talked about with Mother Nature kind of hardwiring these dogs, mm -hmm. right? Because they're just predators. And if you think about with, uh, you know, they're, they're like a coyote, a wolf, anything. Right. Well, you you think about it. If your dog goes out there and he busts all these birds and he's running crazy and wild, what happens? You get pissed off at him, you curse him, but you take him home and you feed him. Right. If that coyote does that, he doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. He can't keep doing that or he's dead. <laughs> so we got to figure right? it out. Exactly. Yeah. So what happens over time, evolution, they figured out they must discard unsuccessful behaviors quickly yeah. and repeat successful behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that, and that's kind of what happens. You know, if, if, if your dog figures out how to pin a pheasant, you get that pheasant for him, then he's going to keep doing that. Yeah. And, you know, and it, and it's the same, it, that's the same that I do with my training technique. You know, it's about you get a bird again, it's successful. If you stand here, you're successful. If you break and try to go in, you're unsuccessful and the bird gets away. Mm -hmm. And it, and it really comes down, I mean, I know it's not that simple when you're training, but that's basically what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, it. no, it's not that simple per se, but it's the thing that you have to keep at the forefront of your mind. You see right. what I'm saying? Like, this is ultimately the objective for the dog and and in training i mean everybody gets frustrated the dog gets frustrated right. we get frustrated but if you keep that in mind 
Um, I, I, I think you will be successful, man. I mean, you know, for yeah. any listeners that are hearing that, I, I really do think that based on what you are, are trying to get accomplished with your dog, keep it at the forefront and, and look for the little things, you know? Right. Yeah, it, it's about, like I said, it's about reading the dog and seeing where the dog needs to be. I mean, like I said, you should always have a plan, but not always is that plan going to go exactly the way you want. You may have to make, you know, make modifications to how you get to your end goal. I mean, the plan is still good, but you might have to kind of tweak the way you get there. Right, right. I mean, and, and that is why we have gentlemen like yourself. <laughs> then now that now that I, you know, we've been talking, you kind of can see what I'm even dealing with and struggling with over here. Right. And, and the days get better. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. So, well, Philip, what you know, leave the listeners with with one lasting thought, if you don't mind. And and how can we get? If I hope you know, that people would find uh, the information that you give, you know, beneficial. How can folks find you? Uh, well, I actually, I can give you an email address that'll work for me. They can reach me, you know, and I'll, I pick them up and I'll get back to them. Okay. Because uh, I always love talking dogs. Well, yeah, well, you stuck with talking dogs with me now. I can tell you that now. Right. Well, and they can reach me at Mailey, that's M-A-I-L-E-Y, mm-hmm. dot Philip with two L's, zero two, at gmail.com. Okay, gotcha. And, and uh, you know, I, I check that email quite a bit, and yeah, I'll, I'll get back to them if they have questions or if they want information or something like that. Okay. I'm, you know, always happy to help. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. I, I really, you know, because it's, it's what I enjoy doing and I like helping people get the most out of their dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's what it's about. You got any lasting thoughts? Anything else we might not have covered? Uh, well, no, I, I think we kind of covered it all. I mean, as, as in-depth as you can get in, in a short period of time. You know, with, <laughs> with training, it's... You know, it's like I said, it seems simple. The the procedure is simple, but it's how you actually set things up and get there that, that really makes the difference. But, you know, if I can tell people anything, the most important thing is to learn to read your dog. Learn what's going on with your dog when you do something. Guys think that, well, I did this, therefore the dog should think this. But the fact is, it doesn't really matter what you think of what just happened with yeah. the dog. Yeah. It only th- it only matters what the dog thinks just happened. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, always keep that in mind because the dog is thinking about whatever it happens. I mean, you can, you can see that if you, if you, if you're training a dog on something and you put him up for, you know, two or three hours and bring him back out, a lot of times you'll see a definite improvement just in that time he sat there and thought about it. Right, right. So that that's always a big thing. And I always have guys that tell me, uh, you know, I'll see problems in a dog and I'll say, well, you've been putting too much pressure on the dog. And they'll say, oh, no, 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 I haven't been putting any pressure on him. And, and it's, it's not worth arguing with them about, <laughs> about how much pressure they put on the dog. But what I'll tend to tell them is, okay, you may not have perceived it as pressure, but the dog did. Right. 
and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I like I said, my my whole thing is I train with as little pressure as possible. I just try to set up the situation so that he gets a bird if he does it my way. He gets nothing if he doesn't. Right, right. Well, that's that's key, man. And I've learned a lot just, you know, in the the few weeks leading up to this podcast and even in this time talking to you. So I can't thank you enough for even being on, seriously. Um, and I, I want to thank Hunter for introducing that. me also. <laughs> yeah, and, and Hunter, one thing, because you, you kind of mentioned, well, how did I get hooked up with Hunter? I actually met him on Facebook. Okay. And we kind of, you know, chatted a little bit. He said he was looking for a dog. I put him in touch with uh, Fred Rice at Sundance Kennels. Okay. And at the time, Fred was living in North Carolina, so they weren't all that far apart. And so I put him in touch with Fred. Fred ended up getting him a dog. Uh, and actually, Hunter's dog is a half sister to to my puppy. Oh, nice! Uh, yeah, same same damn different sire. Okay, okay, okay. Well, look now, we uh, we we gonna have to get together, man. I, I hope I can. Uh, I hope we can coordinate some time out in Kansas. You know, if it works, and and man, I'm I'm all ears. Whatever I can learn, seriously. Okay, and and one one last thing I'd like to say to the to, to the people if yeah. they are interested in really training a versatile dog to be a versatile dog, um, because like I said, when you see that level, uh, what that dog can do, you know, reach out to your local NABDA chapter, get involved with those guys. They can help you tremendously. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will definitely uh, put as much of that information in the show notes as well. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that's another phenomenal episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. That is Philip Maley. And Philip, hang on one second. Um, guys, we will catch up with y'all next week. y'all enjoyed that episode with Philip Maley. Um, I sure did and I've been talking to Philip and uh, we are planning on doing some more uh, you know conversation and, and talking about versatile dogs and, and me really picking his brain more because um, like I was telling him I really feel like I only scratched the surface of his knowledge. Um, so what I'm thinking about is talking to him about how to prepare a training plan um, and, and things like that. So, you know, for you for you short tail guys out there, um, i got to give you one. It's definitely a win in, in, in the short tail book. But um, anywho, like I wanted to do beforehand, I wanted to kind of go back over some of the interesting you know notes and things like that um you know in my reading and i'm still um you know slowly willingly willfully slowly i'm getting through my af hodgewalk uh book and you know bird dogs and their history and achievements has been really 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 interesting to me um you know hodgewalk again was one of the pinnacle reporters if not i think he was a one of the first, if not the first, um, reporters for the American field. And, I mean, I just love the way he, 
describes and talks about the stories behind these dogs. So I'm still in Pointerland. Um, I'll, I'll get to, he writes about a few others in the book, but I'm still in Pointerland because I wanted to talk about a special dog named Alfred's John. So when I was going through um, this dog in, in chapter four is called the New Stars. Alfred's John, Fischl's Frank, and Manitoba Rep. Well, we talked about Manitoba Rep beforehand, but I just really thought Alfred's John was an interesting dog. His whole uh, beginning was very unusual, I guess. Um, I don't, you know, we're, we're, we're in 1901, January 12th to be exact, um, is when he was whelped. And, you know, his story, I guess, kind of, maybe it's expected, maybe it's not, you know, for these high quality dogs. This one was a bit off, off kilter a little bit. So I just want to kind of go over a little passage um, that Hodgewalt wrote about, about this dog. Um, he starts on page 80, or not page 83, uh, page 33. Um, and he says, Alfred's John was whelped well January 12th, 1901, and saw the light of day in, little, in a little Indiana town where he grew up wild. First point. Uh, it was only by accident that he was discovered, for his owner, Thomas Alford, was not a field trial man, but for the fact that W.J. Bond and C.H. Faust happened to be in a little town of Warren in the spring of 1902 to try out some setter field trial prospects. Um, it is it is just possible that this pointer of plebeian origin might have lived his life like many other human or many other human many another human village, Hampton, many other many another human village, Hampton. That's an interesting way of saying that, unhonored and unsung. However, Mr. Fowl saw the puppy work out with his setters, and Mr. Bond was there to express his opinion of them. After two trials, he decided that the setters were failures, but that this unknown pointer had great possibilities. The result was that Mr. Faust made an arrangement with Thomas Alford to campaign the puppy, which was named Alford's John. He was sent to J.T. Jones and made his first appearance in the chicken derbies, of the fall of 1902, this unknown handler and unknown dog startled the entire field trial contingent. Offers John won three firsts and one third during his derby year. After that, Mr. Faust took Mr. Alford's interests and R.R. Dickey of Dayton, Ohio, became a partner. Uh, John's first all-age year was another success for he won three firsts and two seconds in the principal trials of the major circuit. In 1904, he was starting a Manitoba All-Age all Stake and a Manitoba Championship on the Prairie Chickens, won them both, and was retired on his laurels. All right, so that's 33-34. And one more quick passage that I thought was interesting about him offers John was, decided, was a decided outcross from the blood that was winning in field trials. He was a prodigy. The quote-unquote stand patterns were somewhat careful of breeding to him but the general public did not seem to be afraid of this wonderful pointer of plebeian origin. Uh, some said his pedigree was not authentic. I am not here to verify or cast doubts upon it. The fact remains that the pointer of today is better because Alfred's John had his being and, became, and came into his history. 
This became more obvious as the years went by, and it is still in evidence. It is this, this strong, vigorous dog with a level head and marvelous brains and nose was an outcross. It is true. And by the very vigor of that outcross, he has been a boon. What if breeders had ignored him? Uh, as many setter breeders would have done with a dog of their kind, which was not, quote-unquote, straight bred. Um, it's just very, very, very interesting to me um, for a couple of reasons that I, I was taking notes on it. Um, and one thing that I note, and Hotchwalt says a number of times up to this point in the book, um, he, he notes that the early pointed breeders were not a Afraid to bring new blood into their pedigrees. Um, they were willing to, you know, kind of take a risk on it. And I think that's pretty cool. I don't think you're going to see that nowadays, but I think it's pretty cool that they were so interested in importing dogs and bringing, you know, unknown dogs um, that really hadn't proven themselves into a bloodline. And it worked. I think for the dogs that we have nowadays, it took those guys um, a bit of willpower, man, and, and, and striding away from the unconventional. Um, I've got a deeper respect for the setter guys. Not that I didn't have it before, but I really like, you know, some of the history of the setters, and that comes later in the book. But, I mean, the setters were pulling weight. They were, you know, some of the first ones to pull weight, um, you know, in the American field trials. So, Alfred John also sired a lot of daughters that will become great influences to future pointer lines as well which you know goes back to that big overarching question that i've had for the last few podcasts which is why the females are so important to a bloodline i mean i've seen that and i've kind of been poking around and trying to find my own um you know way around that question and the more and more i think about it maybe it's law of attraction I have uh, just found more instances of that. So for me, what that does is my next pointer obviously will be a female. And I am really, really, really interested in um, going to a Miller dog, honestly. Um, it's possible. I'm really interested because I like, you know, I, I want to... Like I said, bring some weight to the 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 line that I have now, and in hopes that Vegas, you know, turns out to be the rock star that I think he will be. Um, you know, some of these things you just you never know, but it's good. I like being optimistic um, in that way. Um, the thing that, like I said, stood out to me was. The quote, the fact remains that that the pointer of today is better because Alfred John had his being and came into his history. I mean, that's just a cool story, man. It's really a cool story. And um, gives, I just like knowing what was going on back then. They pulled this random dog, random, you know, farm dog. And he was raised wild. So the dog sounds like the dog more or less you know, gave itself his own foundation. So I know we harp on getting dogs on wild birds, but I mean, you know, it's only so far that a pen raised 
Bird will be able to go. I mean, even Vegas. Vegas looked very good on, uh, you know, in my opinion, on his first set of pin raised birds. But this season is going to be critical. You know, this season is going to be very, very, very critical. And I've got many, many plans for him. Um, we should start going down to Thomasville. I'm working out with Neil and those, those boys down there. And um, we are also going to Alabama to start working with Daniel Howell, um, Rocky Creek Field Trials, and, and, and do some work with him. And also Will Thompson out in Alabama. Um, he's given me the invite to come and, and, and hang out with him on his plantation and, and work birds. So, Will, if you're listening to this, Daniel, if you're listening to this, I wanted to publicly thank you guys. Um, so, yeah, you know, just a little bit more insight. Um, I'm always reading, guys. I like to put in some of the things from my own gun dog notebook. Um, maybe I'll find interesting. All right. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of the podcast. Um, I don't really have much else for you. Um, I hope that you guys are enjoying, you know, some of these new thoughts and new insights and things like that. If you are, those of you guys that have let me know, I just really appreciate it. Um, and I'm not expecting, you know, anybody to reach out, but seriously, those of you guys that have reached out, um, I want to express my gratitude, um, in that way you guys know that i probably say thank you 50 million times to everyone but i really think that this journey this bird dog journey of mine has just gotten so much better since day one since i started so i have to um note the folks that are have helped me before helping me out now um, Ryan Mulcahy, um, I mean, he's just a, a really good dude and very critical on me, but I appreciate it. Um, I think it takes for, for what we're doing guys, I, I really think it takes a, a, a solid and honest and, and constructive body of criticism for the bird dog work that we're doing. Um, you know, it, 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 if we're going to continue to advance and things like that, but also it takes a certain amount of understanding, you know, that other folks are coming in and things like that. So, you know, just keep doing what you guys do, man. I, uh, going to wrap this up now and I, yeah, I think that's it. Oh, 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 last thing. So a couple of books that I got, those of y'all that are asking what else I'm reading, um, I got a book called For a Handful of Feathers by Guy De La Valdaine. Um, That should be pretty good. It's going to take me a minute to get there because I still got to read through this Hotswalt book and Among the Aspen, Mark Parman. So I'll get there. But I was just excited about it. And the um, Reed Bryant and Ronnie Smith book is out um and it's on pointers um you guys should check that out i will have it looks like i got the pre-order uh coming in uh let's say i think the first day of october so anywho 
Y'all have a great one. I hope y'all season continues to be awesome from what I've seen on social media and just talking to people. And y'all boys that's out there in the grouse woods, y'all are making me jealous. So anywho, y'all have a great one. Catch you next week. Again, guys, I'd like to thank all my sponsors and affiliates from Onyx Maps, our title sponsor, to Yukonuba Sporting Dog, to Garmin Fish and Hunt, um, for, to Dakota 283 Kennels, to Lion Country Supply, and everybody else that has been supporting the podcast since day one. Thanks again to Project Upland and the Northwoods Collective. Also, guys, I just happened to open up my Instagram and look who's using the gun dog notebook number one. Andrew Wayman is using my very first uh, gun dog notebook, the little small black one that fits in your game vest. And he is chronicling some of the hunts like one of the most phenomenal writers of our generation is using the gun dog notebook i'm I'm just i'm honored (laughs) i'm really honored so thank you guys uh you know so much for supporting and andy i mean man (laughs) i mean i know you said you were gonna do it but it's it's different seeing it in person um so I'm just looking forward to the stories that come out, and I hope you write another book, but all right. Talk to you guys later.